You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. We are back into the Gospel of Luke. Last Sunday, Pastor Greg concluded chapter 2 for us, uh, where Jesus was a a 12-year-old boy getting left behind by his mom and dad in Jerusalem, which is always kind of a funny story, but uh, a good one for us as the, the teaching was that Jesus was, um, that Jesus was submissive not only to his mom and dad, but to the work of his Father in heaven as well. And so this morning, as we turn the page into chapter 3, we will find ourselves fast-forwarding in the life of Jesus. He's not 12 years old anymore. He's probably 30. And chapter 3 marks the beginning of what we call Jesus' ministry, and the bulk of what we'll be hearing uh, occurs at this time in Jesus' life. Um, So obviously, if you have your Bible, feel free to open to Luke chapter 3. We'll be reading the first half or so of the chapter. Um, And it is, all joking aside, it is a lot... Of, of scripture, so I'm actually going to be uh, teaching it in three uh, chunks, okay? So we'll read a portion of it, a pause, we'll read another portion of it, pause, and then we'll conclude. Uh, the climax this morning is uh, the baptism of Jesus. So that's what we're working towards, uh, but we have some things to discuss before we get there. So Luke chapter 3, starting at verse 1, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Oteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the word of the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill will be made low, and the crooked will become straight. The rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. So in the first two verses of Luke chapter 3, Luke gives us a list of all these different people. We don't know who they are or what they're doing in our Bibles. Uh, there's a reason for this in verses 1 and 2. The first reason is, is a practical one, right? Uh, Luke gives us a bunch of political leaders, starting with Caesar himself and then some, some uh, lower ones who would serve under Caesar, as well as a couple of high priests. Now, there's only one high priest at the time, Caiaphas, but his father-in-law, Annas, was previous to him. So obviously, he's still well-known enough for Luke to mention um, and so because, because of this attention to detail in Luke, this is helpful for us because we're able to see the historical context in which Luke gives the message. Um, and this is important because it matters when, where, and how these events actually happened, right? And what's cool is uh, history experts, I, I don't speak for myself, but I trust uh, scholars, very smart and hardworking people are able to go back in ancient history and identify each one of these people and the time that they served and that indeed these are, you know, this is a real 
setting in history that Jesus came into. And so it, in a sense, it is historically factual. So this is sort of a practical reason, but there's also a thematic reason uh, that Luke would include people such as these. And this will remind us of the main theme of Luke that we've already been talking about in chapter 2. And that is that first, there's everyone that matters in the world of politics. There's everyone that matters, well, really only one person, but the high priest, the most important religious character at the time. And then it says that God's word came uh, not to them, but to this wild man uh, in the wilderness at the river Jordan, whose name is John. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but I would call myself a Baptist. <laughs> I've, that might surprise some of you. I, you know, for a very, very long time, that was my church uh, tradition, was the Baptist church. So Baptists love to call John, John the Baptist. Um, John was not a Baptist. <laughs> uh, he, was, he, he liked to baptize, as we read. John the Baptizer, um, he's not a Baptist, but we do call him John the Baptist. And so after over 400 years of silence from God's prophets from the Old Testament, 460 years of nothing, of waiting for a word from God, the word came uh, not to Jerusalem, not to the temple, um, not to Herod or his staff members at City Hall, but to John the Baptist. And so this is part of the, the great the, the big picture theme which we've been talking about where God's, God's power is not the same as the world's power. It does not operate in the same uh, centers and circles of worldly power, but it actually differs away from them. The word didn't come to any of those first people. It came to John in the wilderness. Not only that, but in verse 6, as they quote the prophet Isaiah, it says that, that salvation would come uh, for everyone to see. All would see the salvation coming. So there's a universal aspect to the good news. It is for anyone and everyone, not just a select few, not just the important people. Moving into verse uh, 7, we'll read 7 to 14 now. Uh, this takes a really different tone as John delivers his sermon. Then the crowds were coming to be baptized by John, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, Well, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. The one who has food must do the same. And tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, Don't collect any more than you've been authorized to. Some soldiers also questioned him, well, what should we do? And he said, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. So I have to guess that if John was touring 
around uh, churches today, perhaps as a pastoral candidate or something like that. Uh, churches would be reluctant to invite him back after this sermon. Um, John the Baptist would not be a, a popular teacher, I don't think, today if, if, if he was alive. And this is because he makes us very uncomfortable with what he says, doesn't he? We can feel God's anger through his words at the, at the hypocrisy of his people as they've drifted from him, as they've turned away from him and rebelled in this time of waiting. They've hardened their hearts with sin. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And so the Holy Spirit has enabled John to see people's hearts and to speak to the heart, to the sin that lies within. And he's calling it out. He's saying, these things are not welcome in the kingdom that has arrived. And then there are those in verse 8 who feel that because of their being in the right religious category, um, that God will automatically be pleased with them, right? The sons of Abraham. Uh, they have Abraham as their father. So, so who cares, you know, maybe if they sin or don't sin or if they repent? What's the big deal? And John is having none of that. So, it's a hard message. It's a hard sermon for the crowd. Uh, but they respond, they, they hear it, and they want to respond, and, and so they actually do what I think most of us should do and sometimes fail to. They ask a simple question, which is, uh, what should we do? After this conviction, what should we do? When the Holy Spirit reveals where we may be sinning, rebelling against God, what needs to happen? What steps do we take? So in general, uh, John says that a person who turns away from sin, that their lives will have evidence of them doing that. There will be evidence of the renewal that happens within when we repent. In other words, it's one thing to apologize, to say we're sorry for something, right? We've, we've all done that. Or maybe we feel bad when we do something wrong. But repentance is not the same as, as an apology or just feeling bad or self-pity, Repentance produces real-life change in our behaviors. This is consistent with uh, what Paul teaches in Acts 26, where he says in verse 20 that he preached in Damascus and Jerusalem and Judea and to the Gentiles as well, that they should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance. If we repent, we will do works that are worthy of the repentance that we profess. They go hand in hand. This is what John is teaching. And I love how he, gets, he gives specific advice for specific people. That's very interesting. I mean, in general to the crowd, he says, if you are selfish, like if you have a lot of something, don't keep it for yourself, but share. If the temptation is to be selfish, then, then instead, repent and be generous to the needy. And to the tax collectors, people who are, are no doubt a fairly guilty bunch of people, they're not exactly well-liked in their society because they have a reputation of cheating people out of money. They come to be baptized, which I love, and he says to them, um, you know, you used to be dishonest in your work. Well, repent and begin to live with integrity. Be honest about the work that you do. 
Or if, if the temptation is to abuse power or to complain about your situation in life like the soldiers, then he says, stop doing these things. And there will be evidence of your heart change on display. So our behaviors are an evidence of our repentance. Uh, it seems that John would agree with uh, words from the Westminster Catechism, which teaches Christians to repent for particular sins particularly. We repent for particular sins particularly. And so he, he speaks to each of their types of work, the temptations that they face, and how to repent from it in order to better prepare the way for the coming kingdom. Now, we probably all know that repentance requires humility. These kinds of changes require humility from us. But other than that, I'm, I'm impressed that his advice to them is, is really simple. It's basic, isn't it? And it often is. Repentance is not uh, confusing, highly intellectual theology that's hard for us to understand. At least it shouldn't be. It's simple behaviors that we can change and live our lives in a way that pleases God and prepares room for him. And this is what God was looking for to prepare the way for Jesus, wasn't it? As John was prophesying, this is what the word that he sent to John that he wanted his people to hear was to repent, to prepare the way for Jesus to arrive. And I believe that the word is the same for us today. Now, even though his preaching was a little on the aggressive side, he was very blunt, um, it worked. It worked, as it often does. Uh, there, was, there was an effect that was had as he was so straight with people and expressive. It got to their hearts. As we just read, they asked him, well, what should we do? But John was so convincing in his, in his teaching to people that they began to wonder if John was actually the prophesied one, if John was the promised Messiah. We'll read about this uh, starting in verse 15. We'll read to 22, 315 to 22. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and so all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might actually be the Messiah. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming, and I am not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodus, his brother's wife, all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else, and he locked up John in prison. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And as he was praying, heaven opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So no, John the Baptist was not the Messiah, but he was a prophet spreading the word to prepare the way for Jesus. And John refuses any extra attention that's undeserved. The questioning, he says, no, 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 I'm not worthy to untie, untie Jesus' sandal straps. That's like us saying, I, am not, I don't deserve to take out the trash for this person, right? They are so great, I don't even come close 
Speaking of places of power and politics and, and this leader, Herod, this isn't Herod the Great, but one of his sons. It's interesting that John takes his teaching to Herod, to a place of power in specific, and it is not received in the same way that it is in the Jordan River by the people. Here we have the same demand for repentance, but the fact is it's not one that everyone necessarily wants to hear. Well, none, none of us want to hear, but in particular, many don't want to respond. So John preaches clearly to the wrong crowd because Herod is not interesting, interested in repentance, but rather he wants to just shut down the voice of John the prophet. He, he puts it away. He puts John in prison. He wants none of it. But like a good prophet, uh, John is faithful, right? He doesn't back down to speaking the truth, even to Herod, and it, this cost him everything. So again, this reminds us of the big picture theme in which the proud are rejected or the proud reject the kingdom of God, but the humble are welcomed in. And then what the chapter has uh, been leading up to, let's dwell on, on verses 21 and 22, Jesus' baptism. Now, if you are curious, you may be asking the question, well, why does Jesus need to be baptized? Why would Jesus be baptized if John's baptism is for the repentance of sin and Jesus was not a sinful man, then what's he doing in the waters of baptism with John? This is a very good question. There's a number of reasons that we can you know, describe for why Jesus would be baptized, uh, but the first one that I would suggest is that Jesus is identifying with sinners. He's not a sinner, but he came to dwell with us, right? He, he became, God became human. And he's so close to us that he's willing to identify with those who are repenting of sin and join them in the waters of baptism to show us how God has come to be with his people and to lead us out into freedom. So that would be the first reason, but still, there's more questions to ask. And, and actually, John himself um, in Matthew's account, wonders this. He has the same question. Why would Jesus come to be baptized? In Matthew 3, 14 and 15, uh, John tried to stop him. Imagine that. He tries to stop Jesus from being baptized. He says, no, no, no. I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me. And Jesus answered him, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. And John says, okay. He allows him to be baptized. His baptism is the way to fulfill all righteousness. And we can see this to be true immediately after, as Jesus is praying, because there is a divine affirmation, the voice of the Father speaking from heaven of his Son. He's very well pleased with him. I want to read verse 22 again. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Notice how in this verse the Trinity is on display. It's visible. We have the Father speaking to the Son, and the Spirit is there with them. As this happens, the righteousness that God desires for humanity is fulfilled not in other individual human beings, but in his son, who he is well pleased. Um, this is a fulfillment of 
I mean, many things, more than I can you know, understand, but um, one in particular, this uh, throws it back to the prophet Isaiah again, this time in 42. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, this is my servant, I strengthen him, this is my chosen one, I delight in him, I have put my spirit on him, he will bring justice to the nations. This is what happened, this is fulfilled when Jesus was baptized. Righteousness fulfilled. And the third thing, that, the third reason that I would put to us today for Jesus' baptism is also a foreshadowing of what we now know is going to happen in his life, right? A baptism is a symbol of death and then resurrection, going under the water symbolizes uh, the grave and up again, to us, it's a representation of new life. Well, this is what's going to happen at the end of Jesus' life, at his crucifixion, and then he's buried in the grave for three days, and he comes back out of the water. Well, he participates ahead of time in John's baptism, uh, perhaps symbolically to show what would be coming um, in his death and resurrection in the future. Romans 3 uh, explains this clearly for us, Romans 3, 21 and 23, where Paul says that now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed through Jesus, attested by the law and the prophets. So the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, which again is what John was teaching, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Jesus Christ. And I also want to read 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us or a sin offering for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there's the fulfillment of righteousness once again through Jesus. So no, Jesus was not baptized to be saved from sin. Jesus was baptized to show that he would save you and me from sin. Righteousness fulfilled for us. Jesus was baptized to show how he would save you and I from sin. And that's the end of our reading for this morning. And really where I want to conclude is with... uh, our salvation from sin through Jesus. As we continue in the weeks to come in Luke's gospel, we're just getting started. So there's going to be so many uh, stories and events and parables which will, I, I pray, will deepen our understanding of who Jesus is and our love of him as we get to know him more and more in, in the weeks to come through Luke's gospel. Uh, So having said that, let's pray now just to reflect on the word a little bit as well as to prepare our hearts uh, for a time of communion together. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word today and as we read just part of Luke chapter 3, we have a lot to process. Uh, There's so much to respond to, and we want to respond, God, to what you are calling us to. So Spirit, thank you that you guide us in this process. Lord, would you reveal uh, the sin that deserves repentance in our lives, the particular sins that we can repent from in particular. Uh, where is the fruit, Lord, that you want to grow in us, the fruit of repentance that, so that we would be more prepared for the way of Jesus? 
for the work that you want to do in and through us. Show us these things in our particular areas of work and of serving and of living, Lord. Help us to be faithful to your call to righteousness. Having said that, God, I want to thank you for your mighty grace. I thank you that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Not just some, but all righteousness, Lord. And so you bring us into your family, all because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. And so for now, we thank you that we live in the power of that, that your spirit dwells with us, and that as uh, you look on your children, uh, that you see us through your son. And much like you have said to your son, my servant who I'm well pleased with, Lord, that you are pleased with us, not because of our righteousness, but because of Jesus's. So we, again, thank you for that grace, for the love with which you have loved us, and that you welcome each one of us, each and every person, no matter who we are, because of Jesus. And so, Father, as we come to receive communion this morning, We consider these things. We pray about them with thanksgiving in our hearts as we come before the cross. In Jesus' name we pray.